Hello and welcome to another episode of The Growth Podcast. I am really excited today to have Weston Stearns, the CRO at DataCamp, with us. Weston, thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And we connected a couple of weeks ago and you work at, as people can presume from the name of the company, a very data-driven company as part of your, your end product. But also like the way that you have built your company is around that like it's a research culture, data culture, growth culture from the start. I think that that's what we're going to cover today. It's all about like, yes, you can train a company later to become more of a growth mindset type company, but how do you do that from the start? And you've done that, you've seen it through. And so we're going to dig into that today. So why don't you give a quick intro of yourself so people have some context and then we could dive right in. Sure. So a little background on me. I have a degree in statistics. I did a lot of data science in college, graduated and did a quant finance for a few years. Enjoyed that, but then ended up getting connected uh, with DataCamp when they were really early stage. So I actually joined the company almost four years ago. There was about 10 folks at the company at the time. So I wore a ton of hats, as most people do in early stage companies. I did support, I did social media, I was finding traction channels. We were really just getting lift off uh, because we didn't have a ton of users at the time, didn't have a ton of revenue. And the goal was just to try to really get that scale going. So built a team from scratch, um, ended up spinning up a growth team focused on online experimentation and, and finding new acquisition channels. And it's kind of just evolved into owning really B2C and self-service functions here at DataCamp. So that's really my responsibility now is, is kind of owning that revenue number and assembling a team to try to maximize that revenue. A lot of companies go like back their way in and you have like set up your part of the org to be this growth minded from the beginning. What does the like structure org design look like that you have set up today? Because I know there's like two CROs, which is really interesting. So I, I would just love to hear that. Yeah, maybe two elements to that, right? So the one element to, you know, how, how do we make sure the team is kind of a growth mindset? That, that one was pretty simple. My, my team actually grew from a growth team. So my entire team was basically seeded as a growth team that was focused on experimentation, focused on impact, focused on making sure we had a quantitative and systematic way of, of finding growth for the company. And that blossomed into a more robust set of responsibilities for the team. That's how we kind of keep that growth mindset. It just really was ingrained in, in it from the very beginning. We've hired people who kind of gel with that, that mindset. In addition to that, though, on the data side, uh, kind of the data-oriented side, a lot of that's hiring. A lot of that's just in our DNA as a company, right? So we assume, you know, you need to bring data to the table if you're going to create an argument or if you have any sort of initiative that you have in mind. So we expect you to bring data to the conversation. That's really the baseline expectation. Data is half of our name, so it makes sense, right? On the other side of things... We also try to make sure that we are also metrics oriented, right? So we also align the company around our core metrics, which then in turn also makes it more data driven. So it's kind of like something that goes in hand in hand, something we do pretty well. For example, for my team, we own a revenue number, right? On the self-service side, so B2C and self-service. I have a counterpart a CRO, his name's Adam, and he runs the enterprise and corporate sales function. And the goals really are saying, listen, you own this metric. It's your job to assemble a team to hit that metric. Right. So we really give ownership at the metric level and then we allow you to kind of build that team around uh, what's necessary. And that also goes lower in the organization as well. On my team, I have an acquisition team or retention team and those folks own those metrics. And really the goal is what resources do you need to have meaningful impact to hit those goals? Right. So it really starts from being data driven, aligning by metrics and kind of the organizational design follows from that. 
I want to touch on, you had mentioned around, like you were hiring for data and data focus at the beginning. Is it like specific skill sets or is it more a way that you can tell the person thinks about data or uh, it's probably a mix of both? Yeah, it's definitely a mix of both. We kind of have a positive feedback loop with DataCamp, right? We actually have a lot of people who work here now who use DataCamp, right? Who, who found out about the company because they were users, right? So that we just have kind of a natural flow of people who are data-oriented and interested in this stuff. We also have a pretty good grip in the community. We really have a really nice place that we've kind of carved out for ourselves where we really do educate a lot of people. We have 5 million users learning on our platform. So a lot of people are kind of aware of us in the space, which also draws a lot of talent to us. So that's a little bit more relevant for technical roles, data scientists, or even engineers, On the non-technical side, it is more of a mindset. It's really more saying, like, we make sure that people are thinking impact first, people are thinking metrics oriented, people can kind of sit across the table and really debate based on these metrics and really sit next to a data scientist and assist them and really make sure that they understand, like, they're speaking the same language, right? That's all part of our hiring flow. That's part of our screens that we go through. So it's partially both. What methods do you use to pull out if someone is in that type of mindset? Like, how do you ask for that? So for me personally, and on my hiring flows, I really am a big believer in work samples. Depending on what the role is, really trying to give someone a chance to explain what they do in their role, learn what they've done in the past, and then give them a work sample that is similar to what they would be doing at the job, right? So if I'm hiring even a digital marketer, for example, someone to run paid ads, I'll open up our Facebook or Google account, right? And I'll let them kind of go through and say, like, we'd like you to kind of create some reports. I want to do some analyses, even plant some issues in there that are in the data. So they'd have to find those themselves. If they don't find them, that's okay. I still want to be able to talk about it, right? So the goal is like, for every role, you can kind of figure out, okay, what are they going to be doing? What kind of conversations and what kind of influence is this person going to have? And how can I kind of simulate that in an interview uh, environment, right? It's always a little difficult, sometimes a little awkward even, but honestly, at the end of the day, that's what we're going to be doing day to day. If we're going to be sitting next to each other, I want to make sure we, again, speak that same language. I don't want to come to you with evidence and you not understand where I'm coming from, right? Then we're just not going to connect, right? We're not going to be thinking things through the same decision framework. Yep. That makes sense. And then we're going to dig into the hiring flow here because I think this is this is important because you can't build it without it. And then let's say, let's say you find someone that is in that mindset. They're internal tools that you have that are, this is how we make data-driven decisions on top of that? Or do you kind of let people figure out their own process around, like, this is how they justify their decision? Yeah, it, it kind of depends on the role still, but totally. We do have that kind of a framework, right? I mean, let's talk about tooling for a second, because that is really important in our space. We try to make sure that we do give people the resources and we have a lot of transparency with our data. So we have this very robust dashboarding system that we've created all in R and Shiny. Again, these are all topics. These are all languages that we teach, so we're all pretty fluent in it. So we kind of use these dashboards. That's the type of thing I'll also open up during an interview process and say, let's look at this together and talk about like, what kind of things do you see in this trend? Or, or do you see any issues? Do you see any areas of opportunity? Things like that. So that is like the baseline, right? So if someone's going to say, okay, we have to decide if we want to go into this market, we want to be able to make sure they have the tools available to them. Now, we also have a really strong data science team here. Most of the team, honestly, is pretty data literate and kind of pull these numbers themselves. So that's the expectation is saying, okay, if you're going to do this, you need to be able to come back with a almost a number in mind. What do you think the impact of this initiative will be? Or what do you think the impact of stopping this initiative would be? And you can do that through a variety of data collection, evaluate the facts, but then also you have to layer on some intuition and layer on some business acumen to really make those full decisions. So then I'd love to know, do those 
self-starter, find the data, come up to the top with it and say, hey, everyone, here's what I found, all that. Does that inform the goal setting process or is the goal setting process a separate thing that happens and then the micro decisions that happen to drive the goal are that like, how does that how does that look? We try to kind of work forward and backwards, right, to kind of see and make sure you're going to the same number, especially with goal setting. You have a goal in mind. You think you want to set something. By working forwards, I mean, you want to go through and say, okay, if I do X, Y, and Z on a tactical level, like, what do you think can be done here? And what would be the impact of each of those things? And you can kind of get that data from things that you've seen in the past. Again, some intuition, you kind of layer that in. And then you can get to a total, like, here's what the goal should be, given we nail a couple of these tactics, a few of them fail. And then we get to point B, which is where we're trying to get, going from A to B. There's also another way we can approach it is saying, okay, let's actually start at what would be the impact we want to see from this initiative, right? What would be an impact that is like very a sizable gain and sizable win for the company? And then now we work backwards. How could we possibly get there, right? And sometimes you just kind of set a target and say, we don't actually know how we're going to get there yet, but we know we're going to be making data-driven decisions along the way to optimize our chances of getting there. So we kind of do both depending on how predictable those goals are, how predictable those metrics are. Oftentimes they're very unpredictable. I'm thinking about the B2B world, especially. It's very streaky. It's uh, We don't have as much data. That's uh, that's only about 25% of our business. And then the B2C world is very predictable. You know, you can say within a very, fairly small margin of error, what's going to happen in any given month, because these are very large numbers and we, we have a lot of repeatability. We've been doing it for many more years, right? Yeah. And when we had talked before this, you brought up how you prioritize this work versus another piece of work around LTV. And I thought that, that was really interesting. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, that's one of the core metrics we look at. So what we really wanted to do was design a basically an optimization parameter. So we want to design a metric that can translate across multiple parts of the business so that we can prioritize certain initiatives. And the metric that we landed on, given we have a subscription product and we have several different types of offering, is expected annualized LTV. So I can break that down for you. Basically, what we do is we say for you know about 15 or so key parts of either a funnel or user actions, we have assigned a dollar value to each of those, right? And that's like how much value we would take out of that for a user's lifetime. So you can think of it, it's pretty easy for the conversion funnel, right? If you have a four-step conversion funnel where you have uh, a landing, a registration, a active registration, and then a subscription, the subscription, what is the value of that? Well, that's a lifetime value of a new subscription. That's something that's pretty tried and true in this area. How much do you think each individual is going to pay after they subscribe? But if you walk it back, you know, you have active registration, you can say, okay, only 20% of people that are active registrations become subscribers. You can just multiply those through and you can still get to a lifetime value for each of those metrics. So then what you can do is you can say, we have 10 initiatives targeting 10 different metrics, but we can know what the possible LTV, right? Again, this is estimated of each of those initiatives and kind of sort and say, okay, these are actually the highest value ones versus the lower value ones. And then once we actually do those initiatives, we usually run an A-B test. And when we run a test, we can actually see what the impact was and then assign that value as the output, right? So then we can also sort our previous projects. What have we done in the past six months and what has had the highest impact, right? We did an A-B test, uh, increased qualified registrations by 10%. In that case, it would lead to another 2,000 qualified. You know, you can kind of multiply that through and you know how much a qualified registration is worth. You end up with a number that you can compare to something that is a totally different metric that you were targeting, right? Course starts, right? Course starts and qualified registrations are now on the same plane that you can actually evaluate them next to each other, which is really valuable when you're working across a few dozen teams and you're trying to prioritize dozens of different possible metrics. 
I love this. This is something that we've tried and done a bunch at Drift 2. I first heard about a concept of using revenue to prioritize from Adobe and Dropbox. And I love that you're also doing it and you're really closing the loop. So this is something that we went through and I would love to hear your view on it. So let's say you have all these teams, they're coming up with their ideas to impact LTV. Do each of the teams work in a confine of this team is focused on this part of the funnel, right? So the sign of conversion rate. So then within that, they're coming up with ideas around sign of conversion rate. Or is it more like there's just this big list of things that could get done and just pick the highest value one? It's a good question because it kind of depends on the organization. But in this case, right, um, we do kind of align teams by metrics, right? Or by, in some cases on the product side, it's more by kind of problem or like area of focus. So we don't have product teams that own specific products right now is actually a fairly recent change for us. We own like a problem. So you can think of like learner journey, right? So the learner journey team is actually trying to make sure that each individual learner who comes to our site finds what course they want to take and actually is successful taking that course, right? They, they find what they want, right? We're helping optimize that learner journey. And then once they leave, they come back, right? You want to make sure that those people are, are around. So there are certain metrics that they look at. They pretty much are sorting by their same metric for the most part, right? So you're thinking like, they might have 10 projects that are all focused on similar types of metrics. So it's easier for them to prioritize that. So that is kind of like a siloed view. But then if you take a step back, we do have pretty flexible engineers where it's kind of a constellation model. So we can actually move engineers around to the higher impact areas, right? So if if you look at a queue for team one and a queue for team two, and the queue for team two has way more high value projects in the queue, we can move a few engineers to team two, right? So that's how we keep that flexibility. So we do want to have subject matter experts in their area, but we want to keep the labor and the people who are actually doing it somewhat flexible so we can move them across teams to kind of maximize, again, what you were saying is like to really find those highest impact areas and making sure they're getting enough labor and attention. That constellation thing is really interesting. Do you think that's going to keep scaling well? Like, does it work well because the number of engineers isn't like 250? Uh, How do you think about that? I do think it may have trouble scaling, although people, there are many companies that have had a lot of success doing it at scale. So I think it is possible. I think it does need to be part of the culture, though, and it needs to be accepted on the bottoms up and tops down, right? So bottoms up, you need to have enough awareness for your engineers to say, this is something I'm, I'm willing to kind of jump out of teams, even though I loved working with this team. This is where a team needs me the most. I'm here there to have the biggest impact I can, right? As long as they're thinking impact first, which is really what we, we do try to hire for that, right? We want to make sure people think company impact first. That kind of helps make that transition easier from a personal level, right? Because not everyone wants to leave these products that they've worked hard to build. That's part of it is like kind of getting the right people involved. And then I think the next phase is just making sure we're thinking about the right problems and you just don't become siloed and you don't increase friction by, for example, like using different tech stacks. Like you don't impose like extremely strict rules for what engineering teams can do or else they're going to be constrained in the future. And there's going to be kind of resentment there. They're thinking, okay, now I need to use JavaScript to write this thing. But like we have a few people who would love to try this new flavor and like try this new tech stack out. We think it'd be great for this project, but we can't because we need to have flexible engineers. It's constant, you know, that whole thing. That's something that's just a constant balance that you need to have on the technical architecture side. You need to have buy-in on the high level as well that, that we need to keep some consistency so we can have that. I do think that there are parts of that could break down, but I do think the constellation model could work at least if you just start partitioning a little bit. So you're saying, okay, now there's like a group of constellations. You're not going to move outside of these four teams or five teams, but they are flexed within those teams, right? 
And that could solve some of the issue. Interesting. How, how often might an engineer switch between different teams? Yeah, I mean, this is somewhat new for us, but it's something that you could do thinking about it kind of quarterly. You might want to even do something that you could switch within a quarter. But quarterly is kind of the right cadence. I think that's as far out as we can really see and really like, I don't think major priorities shift in, in that amount of time. Plus, we really do try to have a queue of like, here are the high impact things that these teams are doing over the next quarter or so. So you're not going to exhaust that list and now have nothing high impact to work on anymore, right? It's a little predictable on that level, but past a quarter, it's kind of hard. Yeah, that makes sense. One thing I believe I remember you mentioning was each team technically has a quota around the LTV thing. Is that true? To a certain degree. So what we do is, at least on the experimentation side, we try to have the product team as a whole produce X amount of LTV of via tests, right, per quarter, right? So that's kind of how we set that target. And then they kind of get reassigned within the product teams, like based on what they're going to be doing over the next quarter. So if we want to have like a $2 million LTV impact in a quarter for a product team, they kind of need to staff that, right? So then those quotas get put down within the organization to the individual teams. And often, you know, that also has some flexibility and, and things get switched around. But that's kind of how we evaluate the quota. On the end of the of the session, sometimes we, even if it's not an experiment, we can kind of still put a, an LTV number to just about everything you do. And that's kind of how we evaluate what was this team's output for the quarter? It's somewhat quarter oriented, but it's not as like as a sale. It's not as aggressive as a sales quota, right? Where you kind of have a fixed quota, and, you know, you get bonus and comp on that. It's more of just like that's how we now evaluate because it's much easier to say this product team did X dollars, this product team did fifty percent less than that. Like we can now think about staffing, right, and performance even. Yep. And is it that it's so ingrained in the way that your team operates that all the engineers on their day to day speak? in LTV and revenue impact? Is it a thing that you're working to just constantly remind the organization on? It's a little of both, right? I think we are really doing a good job of of that being, like I hear it a lot, right? It is something that is pretty top of mind, but we also have excellent engineers here who also think and talk about engineering things and want to think about engineering and how to create an optimal product and optimal user experience. Then that LTV kind of goes away, but it seems very prevalent during the planning process and the evaluation process, right? And that's kind of where it matters the most. The day-to-day, it does matter that like each decision being made is is maybe LTV oriented, but honestly, a lot of decisions are made during the quarterly road mapping of a product squad. So a lot of the times that kind of conversation go away a little bit because those decisions were made months ago. So it is part of the vernacular, certainly part of the vocabulary and the day-to-day conversation, but it's not as active. And we certainly don't demand engineers always be thinking about every action they do LTV oriented, because I think that could be overkill. Okay, so I'd love to circle back. And you had mentioned earlier was you went from this initial centralized growth team to what is now very much a decentralized growth team. If there are listeners that are thinking about either making that switch or starting from the beginning as a decentralized type approach, are there any specific things to totally avoid that would save that person or like that group months of pain or struggle? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think The number one thing I would say is whatever model you choose, I think evangelizing the power of that toolkit, the experimentation, the growth toolkit is always valuable, right? If you have a centralized model, you don't want to have those tools centralized in a silo, right? You want everyone to know about them and to possibly even utilize them. I'm thinking about experimentation, kind of like that being kind of the main tool, but kind of thinking impact first, the prioritization tools that are available and getting pretty normal in a a growth team that really impact mindset. Those are things that you want to kind of evangelize that from day one. So that would be my biggest 
piece of advice is like start evangelizing as soon as you can, no matter what model you pick at an early stage, or even if you have centralized model or decentralized model now, I would still keep doing it, right? I still think that's always valuable to keep saying, this is the value that this toolkit could be presented for you and your team. For advice for starting, I do really love for most companies, especially if it's B2C, if it's B2B, it depends on the volume and and traction you have. Centralized growth really does kind of make sense to me. We had a lot of success with it. I've spoken to a lot of people that have had success with it. I think the value there is just having a team that has one goal in mind, and that is growth, however you define it, and willing to think way outside the box, way outside of silos to get it done is a really great mentality and also spills into other parts of the organization. I really do think it kind of sends a message and shows what's possible. So I think that there's a lot of value there if executed properly. Now, some of the execution, maybe along the more tactical side, I think what we did a pretty good job of early on was being really strict about documentation and tracking what tests we were doing. We used Airtable for this. We basically created our own little system for this where we had one place where we had all of our test ideas. We did all of our impact calculations there. We did all of our estimated LTV for each test that we're going to run or each project that we had. We could kind of be very honest with ourselves with this is what we estimated as and this is how it ended up. It's a repository for all of our learnings too. So thinking about if you want to have a product roadmap in the future and I hear someone say something, I was like, oh no, I ran a test on that two years ago. You should know about that, right? And I can just send them to the Airtable and just send them the Airtable card that says, oh, here's the test, here's all the results, here's everything in one place. So having that infrastructure in place on the ideation and on the projects that you're working on, super, super valuable. It's worth kind of putting in a little effort in up front to do that. But the other thing is the data infrastructure is extraordinarily challenging sometimes depending on what your infrastructure looks like. So we had we were lucky to have an amazing data scientist here who kind of set up, make sure we were running experiments properly. We had the, the data to like kind of make the right decisions going before and after experiments. We had the health checks during the experiments. We kind of created a dashboard on this, something the whole company had visibility on this dashboard too. So it really made it professional really early, which made it very easy for people to digest and easy for people to get excited about which is why we went from centralized growth team with only about five of us to other teams saying, hey, we want to do this. We want to use this toolkit too. Can we use the dashboard? Can we use the Airtable? And we kind of said, okay, yeah, let's start enabling you all to do your own tests. And it kind of organically went from centralized to decentralized because of that excitement that we created. And honestly, again, back to, we just have a really talented team and we hired for that impact-oriented, metrics-driven kind of quantitative group. So it naturally gelled well with the engineering and product organizations. Yeah, I love that. You had all the structure built around it in a way that just worked so smoothly that it was really easy for another team to pick up and say, all right, we're going to operate like this too. I would love to see what your Airtable setup looks like and compare that to how I had set up the impact metric stuff because I modeled ours off of uh, Tebow at the director of growth at Adobe and Darius contractor from Dropbox and, and Facebook. I, I know, oh, he's at Airtable now. I think he's at Airtable now. Anyway, cool. This has been great. I think this is this covered a bunch. Is there anything that you feel like you didn't get to touch on that you wanted to make sure that you covered for, for the people listening? One last thing just on, on kind of creating a growth team. I know that there's some listeners who may be thinking about what that could look like. I would say the advice there is it is a very specific profile for growth. As many probably know, having people who are impact oriented, who are willing to not necessarily do what is not just develop one specific area of expertise, but kind of willing to move and be flexible with what is needed for the business and where the impact really is, is extremely valuable, but also can be challenging. So finding the right engineers, the right data scientists, the right marketers or, or product people with the right mindset 
it can be a real challenge, but it's really, really worth it. I was lucky to have an incredible team here and none of this would be possible without them. And it was worth putting in the extra effort and going through multiple rounds of interviews, passing on good or even great people looking for that excellent person, right? So that is really my biggest piece of advice there is just finding the right people with the right mindset is invaluable. That is a great point to end on. Well, Weston, thank you so much for joining. I think this was super valuable. Great. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be a part of this. Absolutely. And for those of you listening, as always, thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. I know that I say this to wrap all the episodes and probably at this point, you just like hit the end button and move on to your next podcast. But if you're still listening to me babble, I do appreciate it. I would love for a subscribe on your favorite app and a rating as well. If you're a fan, if you have any feedback, any questions, suggested speakers, whatever it might be, send me an email at mattadrift.com and I will catch you next time. Thanks. Thanks.